You are listening to the Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find podcasts and video clips of these lectures online at edcorner.stanford.edu. I'm thrilled to, um, to welcome John to uh, Stanford. We've got a terrific conversation today with him. Uh, let me tell you a little bit about his background and then we'll just dive in, have about a half hour of conversation and then a half hour or so of your questions, um, or more, if you have more than a half hour's worth of questions. Uh, John, John Mello is the CEO of Amaris. Uh, Amaris is a leader in synthetic biology to make useful things. Uh, in fact, the company is so terrific at what it does that it won the World Economic Forum's Tech Pioneer Award for 2006. And I think if you don't know the company, after a few minutes you'll understand why they won this award and why we've invited John to be here. Prior to uh, Amaris, uh, John spent eight years at BP, the uh, big giant oil company, or energy company I should say, um, and he led the North American energy business. And while he was also uh, a general manager in the company, he also presided over the complete repositioning of the BP brand, which I'm sure all of you have seen the Beyond Petroleum uh, positioning that the company's taken, and we, we can talk about that as well. Um, earlier in his career, John uh, worked in accounting uh, here in the Bay Area and also in entrepreneurial ventures uh, in Silicon Valley. So he um, had a transition from entrepreneurship to big company and back to entrepreneurship. So we'll also talk a little bit about that today. So please join me in welcoming John Mello. So uh, to start, maybe for those that don't know, tell us what the heck synthetic biology is and what, uh, what Amherst uses it for. Great question. I, I'm always asking that same question of myself, actually. Yeah. Um, it, it's interesting. You can think of synthetic biology as sort of the magic inside of a box, uh, and that box really being, uh, in very simple terms, a bug. Uh, in this case, uh, a microbe that we all know in the world as yeast. So if you think of what yeast is, uh, what Amherst does is reprograms yeast so that yeast can do what we want it to do uh, when you feed it sugar. That's simply uh, what we do. Uh, another way I think of it is it's almost like uh, uh, writing the operating system for yeast uh, and then getting yeast uh, to do what we want once you put it in a fermentation tank. That's, uh, that's what we do. And, and what do you do to rewrite the operating system of the yeast so that it does these things? And don't tell us any secrets because we're recording. Yeah, very good. I, I'll uh, try to avoid that. It's uh, another simple way to think about it. It's uh, DNA and RNA. So we basically program yeast uh, in our own coding of DNA and RNA to get the pathway we've controlled or do control inside of yeast to do what we want. And, and if you wouldn't mind, give the students a sense for what this looks like when you do it? What, what's the physical environment like where this happens and who's doing this stuff to the yeast? Um, that in a way it is what makes us very unique. It's not, I mean typically you'd have uh, you know biologists uh, assessing how a, a microorganism performs and then deciding what they want to do to it. What we do is we really integrate uh, fermentation capability uh, the uh, chemical engineers, uh, microbial engineers, and biologists together to formulate um, what I'll call kind of uh, to formulate a hypothesis to what's happening inside the microbe and then develop a set of experiments uh, where they then, in a lab, uh, organize the experiments, go to work on them, and then we put them in small flask glasses, shake them all night long, and see what the bugs do. 
And, and so let's talk a little bit about the, the underlying technology. I was doing a little bit of research before, the, before today's session, and I found this terrific article from Time Magazine, um, and it's called Industrial Microbes. And it talks about the fact that, that yeast, among other things, and, other, and, and some types of bacteria, et cetera, are used to make all sorts of things like acetone, alcohol, riboflavin, which I think is in total cereal, um, is the last place I saw it, uh, penicillin, which I'm allergic to, uh, gluconic acids, which is apparently used in, in pharmaceuticals. What fascinated me about this article was that the date is uh, March 26, 1945. Um, and so this apparently is something that's been around, or this idea of getting small things to, or getting small plants or animals to manufacture useful things. What's new about what you're doing with it, and, and why is this company so exciting and special. I, I think that's a, uh, a great piece of context. I mean, I, and keeping in mind that uh, I am not the strongest scientific person in our company, by far, that <laughs> is. Um, if I step back, you know, one of the interesting things about the microbes is we've been using them to get drunk and feed ourselves for a very long time. Oh. Uh, whether it's bread or wine. At the company or uh, in general? Uh, <laughs> both. Okay, okay. I'm with you. It's, you know, it's actually interesting at the company. One of our favorite, uh, favorite events is breaking in a new fermentation tank. Uh, the way we typically break in a new fermentation tank is uh, we make a small batch of beer. And, uh, you know, some of the folks would say that depending on how good the beer tastes is a good indicator of the success of that tank. I'm not sure that's true, but nonetheless... Uh, what's different today is the scale um, and the information technology and the, the processing power available to us. Mm -hmm. A very simple model that I, I've started to use is kind of the concept of Moore's Law mm -hmm. and how Moore's Law is applying to the biological pathway and the engineering work that we're doing today. So, you know, in 1940, we didn't have that kind of computing power mm -hmm. available to us in the lab. Mm -hmm. And then secondly, I think the other... The other different challenge, and we face this every day, uh, not only in the core technology, but in the culture we're trying to build, is that you know, there's a big difference between trying to get, kind of try to make this simple for you, a bug producing product at the equivalent of $10,000 or a million dollars a barrel of oil equivalent cost, versus getting it to produce it at a $60 a barrel of oil equivalent cost. Mm -hmm. And that kind of industrial uh, processing the kind of the kind of need to get the bugs to work in an industrial environment mm -hmm. in a very low cost way, I think is the big difference between you know what you might find in the 1940s and when you, what you might find today. It's the application of the core technology and the underlying or the uh, supportive uh, information technology to help advance the progress and the development of the bug. So, so after the party's over and the beer has been decanted and everybody's had a great time. Presumably you clean this container after you're done. What do you actually make for sale or what are you planning to make for sale? It's uh, our first product is artemisinin, mm -hmm. uh, which is an anti-malarial compound uh, that we've licensed to and are partnered with Sanofi Aventis. Mm -hmm. uh, and that, that product is intended uh, for the sub-Saharan African market. Uh, and you know the success of that product is really something you know, most, most products that we get involved in in my history has been, you know, you, you measure success by the amount of gross margin you can achieve or the amount of sales you can achieve in a period of time. With this product, it's really the number of lives you could save. Mm -hmm. And we're targeting 600,000 lives a year uh, as what I, uh, what I consider to be the successful outcome mm -hmm. of the Artemisinin project. Mm -hmm. So that's our first product. 
Uh, it's a project that was initially funded by the Gates Foundation, uh, and that's really what's given us the head start on a technology platform that can be adapted uh, and transferred to products beyond the pharma industry. Our second product is a renewable diesel. Um, and the renewable diesel is a pretty unique molecule. It is a, um, it's a hydrocarbon that's fully compatible with today's infrastructure. And an interesting way to think about it, it's, it's a uh, renewable replacement for uh, petroleum-based diesel. The product is as good or better than petroleum-based diesel, and it's from a renewable source. So that's our second product. We have jet fuel as a follow-on, and then we have several chemicals, uh, isoprene being one of them, uh, that are markets we're currently looking at uh, for renewable chemicals. So it's uh, pharmaceutical, really focused on saving lives, uh, focused on making or doing our part to have a positive impact on the planet, and then looking at what we can do from the renewable uh, plastics or renewable chemical side of the world. On the uh, on the malaria drug uh, or the or the uh, the artemisinin, do I understand you right that you're going to sell that at cost at your cost? Uh, actually, uh, we're not going to sell it at all. Uh, our view and in our initial agreement with the Gates Foundation was that uh, we would give the technology away for free for distribution to the developing world. Uh, our, our view is that as we study the market, we realize that the reason why children die today of malaria uh, beyond, beyond catching it. So you've got you know, great opportunity to prevent it with nets and other, and other mechanisms. But once they get it, the only reason why they die for the most part is that they can't afford the medicine. So our whole focus has been how do we reduce the cost and make it affordable? And we want to do our part to reduce the cost by uh, taking out the cost of the highest ingredient that goes into uh, an active treatment today. And that ingredient you know, was basically $2.40 to $2.50 uh, of the cost that we're trying to take down to $0.24 cents by taking any margin or taking any sales uh, or license opportunity from the product away from the market. And have the other, <clears throat> excuse me, have the other suppliers to the end to, in the supply chain, have they agreed to, to similar kind of treatment or are they still going to profit from this? Uh, I, yeah, I don't think they're in the same mindset that we are. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, you know, how, how did you get in that mindset? Did you have a debate about this? Was it clear and everybody was on one side or, or how did it, how'd that conversation go? There was really uh, not much debate. I mean, it, if, I think the interesting thing about this is it started off as an interesting science experiment. Hmm. Uh, and because of that, there wasn't debate. It was like, wait a sec, we get to do great science. Hmm. The Gates Foundation gets to pay for it. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, we get to distribute it and save lives. Now, you know, what's wrong with that picture, right? So it, it, it started off really uh, on that basic premise. I see, I see. And, and how did you discover, it seems to me, an odd connection between anti-malarial medication and, and, and synthetic hydrocarbons. Can you help us understand that bridge or that connection? That, that to us was, uh, you know, somewhat accidental. Hmm. I mean, it, it's hard. I mean, I, I'm sure that at some point somebody will write about how well planned that was. <laughs> I think it was more accidental than planned. It was kind of an outcome of working on the artemisinin project that we realized actually the pathway or the best pathway inside of yeast to get to artemisinin is actually a pathway that's great for making all long-chain, complex-structured carbons. Hmm. Uh, when we realized that, we realized, now, wait a sec, that actually opens us up to, first of all, being quite distinctive, because people usually work on simple carbons, short-chain carbons, or alcohols. Um, so quite distinctive in the product set, 
Uh, and in addition to that, it allows us access to 50,000 different molecules. Uh -huh. So this, this wasn't a, you know, it was quite, quite, a, quite a, a dynamic uh, uh, learning when we realized that we had many more markets we could go into as an accident of picking a pathway that worked best to make the antimalarial. So it's all about the core pathway of the bug that actually enables us access to all these different markets. And so I'm guessing this was a highly positive meeting where you discovered that you could accidentally make hydrocarbons um, that were renewable and, and uh, quite useful, I guess. So everybody was pretty fired up about this? Yeah, you know, it's, it's, the, other, uh, it's the other, I guess, misnomer. Uh, unfortunately, these don't happen in single discovery aha uh, meetings, right? No. It's one of these things that, you know, over uh, probably over a year of just constant conversation and understanding what it was we were really doing, mm -hmm. uh, that we realized what we really had. Mm -hmm. uh, and then it became a matter of choice. And I mean, I can tell you when uh, we brought in our, our Series A, our first, uh, our first uh, financing, our first equity-based financing, at that time, we still did not realize the markets we had access to or the potential of the core technology. Mm -hmm. At that point, I mean, John Dewar will say this, I think, openly, I mean, he was making a bet. He basically loved the team. Uh, he thought it was interesting technology, and he thought, you know, with this team and that technology, there's got to be a market somewhere. So, and he loved the cause. Mm -hmm. uh, I think the cause was one of the initial hooks. He couldn't, he couldn't resist the cause, yeah. and it was a great team with an interesting technology. Yeah. So maybe let's shift and talk about the hydrocarbons for a minute. So you've, you've said that a, a, a diesel, a, a, a synthetic diesel, really, it's not a substitute. It works in the same way that uh, regular diesel does. Uh, can you talk a little bit about how you picked that of all the things you could make with the hydrocarbons that were spun off of the artemisinin? Yeah, when I, um, when I joined the company, we, we started to think about our product selection from the market in. Um, instead of thinking about, you know, what can the technology make, mm -hmm. we started with uh, what does the world need? And we started with really understanding uh, diesel today and biodiesel today. And we realized that biodiesel today had some limitations mm -hmm. and that there wasn't a real scalable renewable diesel available. Mm -hmm. So it was from that perspective, kind of market in, mm -hmm. that we realized there were three attributes that would be critical for a renewable product uh, to win. The first is it had to have either as much or more energy content than the existing product. Because if you took energy away, it would be a compromise for the whole chain, especially the end consumer. The second thing is the cetane level, which for diesel is kind of the equivalent of octane. It had to have you know, as much or more cetane than petroleum-based diesel. And the third was temperature. We realized that one of the weaknesses with the oil-based, uh, seed oil-based biodiesels is that they, they got really sticky and gummy and thick uh, anywhere below 10 to 12 degrees Fahrenheit. So we decided to focus on a molecule uh, that would have a freeze point of about 40 degrees Celsius below zero. So that, that's, that's kind of what we did. We said, what are the most important attributes in the market mm -hmm. from the customer's perspective? And then once we chose the attributes we wanted to be very distinctive in, then we asked ourselves, could we make that molecule? Well, we actually had an interim step, which was from a chemistry perspective. We asked ourselves which molecules in the world have similar attributes. Mm -hmm. Then we got to the third step, which was, okay, so there's a set of molecules that could work. And we got to the third step then of saying, so can we actually make those? Can we get the bugs with a pathway we control to make that molecule? Mm -hmm. And that, that whole process, <laughs> beginning to end, once we knew 
what the right attributes were to focus on was about a six-week process. And we think that's pretty distinctive, going from <laughs> targeting what we want from an attribute perspective to making it in the lab, getting the bugs to produce it in six weeks. We think it's pretty cool. Uh, we did the same thing with Jet. I mean, Jet was the same thing. We had, we had uh, uh, the guys at Virgin, specifically Richard Branson. Jet Fuel you're talking Jet about. Jet Fuel. Yep. The Jet Fuel approach was exactly the same. Richard Branson approached us and said, hey, you know, have you thought about the jet market? We said, well, not really. Uh, and then, you know, uh, pushed back and said, uh, you know, can you make a business case for us? What's the business case for Jet? And within a week, uh, his team did a great job. They came back with a perfect slide deck. And the business case, the essence of the business case was really simple. Uh, European market is uh, moving in the direction of carbon tax uh, for jets uh, or jet fuel. Uh, we think this is a problem. Uh, it can have a, a dramatic negative impact on the airline industry, uh, and we think the airline industry needs a better solution. That, that was kind of the essence of it. I mean, it didn't quite say all that, but that was the essence of it. And then that, that was good enough for us to say we ought to focus on uh, a distinctive jet molecule. And it's exactly the same process I described for you with diesel. We asked ourselves, uh, what would make a real distinctive jet fuel? What attributes aren't available today that if we uh, really push the envelope on them would make us distinctive? Uh, then we looked at the chemistry and asked ourselves, so what molecules fall in that area? And then went to the last step, which was uh, getting the bugs to make it. And that was, again, about six weeks. So we're now in this mode of, you know, if there's an interesting molecule to make out there, let me say it differently, if there's a problem to solve and an interesting market to go after, we could probably get to it if it's a complex carbon. That's the other thing we're clear on. We're clear on what we're good at and what we're not. Mm-hmm. We know if it's a complex carbon, we're very good at it. Uh, long chain complex carbon. If it's not, we probably should let somebody who's better at making beer than we are uh, <laughs> at making it. Fair enough. What, what uh, I'm curious about is when you combust or when you put the synthetics, the diesel or the jet fuel through a conventional uh, diesel engine or a jet engine, does it burn in a different way, or is the emission characteristic somehow different than the stuff we make out of crude oil? Uh, the emission characteristics uh, are the same. I mean, you're basically burning a hydrocarbon in the chamber. And I'll, I'll try to explain this. It's actually very important for us. We had to make a choice in the kind of molecule we selected. Uh, and we had to make a choice driven by time to market. And we kind of stood back and said, you know, if time to market's really important, trying to prove to the world that we're developing a molecule that's going to redefine what diesel is, is probably going to be a pretty hard road that's going to add two to three years in certification. Mm-hmm. So we decided actually to go a very different way. We decided to look at the makeup, or what I like to call the cocktail of diesel, because diesel is really many molecules blended together. We looked at that cocktail and we asked ourselves, in that cocktail, which molecule could we blend at a much higher level inside the cocktail still get diesel to perform at the current or better specification than is already approved, the ASTM spec for diesel. Uh, And based on that, could we get to market faster? And that's exactly what we did. So our molecule is a blend in current petroleum diesel. And and blended up to 50%, we meet or exceed the specifications of current petroleum diesel. I see. And that's the same thing with jet. It's a different blend rate but it's the same approach. We decided, let's not go invent the world and try to find a different molecule. Let's find a molecule that's currently in the cocktail that actually does what the world needs, and then let's blend that molecule at a much higher level than the industry has traditionally done. 
because we can make it at a lower cost. That's the, that's the approach we've taken. And, and the cost profile of making this stuff, how do you keep the cost at a breakthrough low level? It sounds very expensive to me. Yeah, not easy. Yeah. That, that's actually the second part of the magic, right? The first part of the magic is can you actually make the darn thing? The second thing is can you make it in a cost-effective way at scale? Uh, and we, we, have, we have focused that on several dimensions. Uh, one is um, keeping the manufacturing process as simple as possible. So we decided, you know, one of the key factors in cost is capital cost. You know, there's a, there's a fantastic product out today. There's two issues. Uh, it's it not very good for the environment, and it's very costly to produce. And that's what I'll call the coal-to-liquids method of making either diesel or jet. You get a great molecule. Uh, it's a fantastic product, but it costs, you know, 2 to $3 billion to build a basic plant. Uh, and, uh, you know, you don't produce a lot when you spend 2 to $3 billion, and you have an issue with uh, carbon sequestration and what you do with CO2 for the environment. So our focus has been, actually, that could be our advantage. How do we pick a scalable process that's low cost? And we decided, you know, the good news is we're working with microbes and they love fermentation. Mm. So we focused on a fermentation process as the manufacturing process to make the product. And by doing that, uh, you know, we also decided we wanted to make our scale up uh, what I like to call capital light. So instead of uh, building a complete new infrastructure for manufacturing our product, we decided let's go where there's uh, available capacity in fermentation today. Let's convert that fermentation capacity from doing whatever it does today to making diesel from a scalable feedstock. So that's the first part of cost is that exact model. You take an existing process, make sure it's low cost, and make sure you can scale it with low capital. Our conversion process today is we could take uh, an ethanol mill in Brazil uh, for about $30 million converted from making 40, 50, 60, 75 million gallons of ethanol a year to making the equivalent in diesel a year. And that's a pretty breakthrough model for how you go to market with our technology. We didn't say let's start from scratch, let's start with what's out there, let's find a low-cost conversion, and let's get that plant to make our product. The second, uh, and, and uh, I think as hard part of cost, is getting the microbes to be super efficient. Oh. Right, if you think about where we are today, and I'll actually go back even further, uh, artemisinin, uh, about nine months ago, uh, and we even say it differently, artemisinin's cost target is about $3,000 a barrel of oil cost equivalent. Now, I don't know about you, I mean, I, I'm not happy with the fact we are at 134 today, so we went up about $4 today, $4.67 a barrel, I think. So a pretty big increase in uh, price of oil today, yet it's still far off from the $3,000 a barrel cost equivalent that artemisinin is actually cost competitive at. Uh, in the last nine months, we've moved our microbe from a $3,000 a barrel of oil equivalent producer to our best, our best strain today is at about $175 to $200 a barrel. Hmm. So that kind of gives you a sense of the magnitude of change and what we're constantly doing to get the cost. It's really in those two areas. Low cost manufacturing process and ensure we get as much efficiency in that process as possible and then highest efficiency strain to get the most conversion of the sugars uh, from the uh, fermentation process to product. So 
um, if, if once it's in the chamber, it burns similarly to the stuff we all know and love, is there, a, is there another way to think about cleanliness here? That, there is. That, that there is, be, Michael. That would make me feel better? Yeah, completely. <laughs> I hope you feel better about it. It's, uh, uh, and for those of you who have not seen the, uh, uh, the Brazilian uh, manufacturing cycle of turning sugar cane to products, I mean, you have to experience it. It is the most sustainable and renewable process I mean, I've experienced everything from the water to the electricity uh, is from a renewable source. Uh, and it's, it's amazing. Not only are they producing power for themselves, they're now the generation, the, the power generation to the grid in Brazil. Uh, for all the right reasons, uh, the Brazilian government fought back putting a new dam uh, coming out of the Amazon, uh, and they, they found a way to be self-sufficient. So instead of the dam to produce power, they're actually burning the bagasse, which is the waste of the cane, for making ethanol and sugar, and they're turning that bagasse uh, into electricity. Uh, so that's one big element of the contribution to CO2 from you know, the ground to the wheel well mm. is actually making sure that the production process is completely renewable, okay. including the fertilizer. There is not a petroleum-based fertilizer that goes into the cane. Mm. Right? They use waste from the process to refertilize the fields. So that, that is what gets you, you know, 80% cycle reduction in CO2. Uh, on the low end, our jet fuel is more like 90. And if you put our diesel in the tractors and in the trucks and the ships that transport the product, for the jet fuel, you could be as high as 110% improvement. Mm. It's fascinating. So, so this is really about life, life cycle it is. reduction as opposed to reduction in the, in the combustion at the end That's state exactly of the right. supply chain. That's fascinating. How did you get to be interested in this and what convinced you to leave a, what I'm assuming was a very cushy job at BP? They have a lot of money um, there, don't they? That's, that's, uh, and that's exactly right, Michael. It's funny, when I was at BP, people always asked me, I had a different background than most folks at BP, so they always asked, well, John, what, what was it like being in startups? And I used to explain to them, you know, the big differences in startups I spent most of my time begging for money. Inside of BP, uh, you don't have to beg for money. It's actually interesting. Uh, but you know, there's, a, there's actually a, an interesting way to relate to it because the folks that have grew up inside BP, they used to complain that BP asked for extensive business cases to allocate capital. And I thought, you know, compared to trying to convince a VC to give you capital, doing a business case inside of a big corporation like BP is actually pretty easy. Convincing them to allocate <laughs> capital isn't that hard. So to me, that's kind of the... Uh, the big difference uh, is, uh, you know, I don't have to bake for capital inside, didn't have to bake for capital inside of BP. Uh, what attracted me to leave BP was uh, John Brown had a lot of influence on my thinking uh, about the environment. And John had a very simple perspective on this. John's view was, you know, uh, we could debate climate change all day long. And the reality is, from his perspective, uh, it's not like there's a completely... Uh, um, underpinned case for climate change. I mean, the facts aren't all clear. However, this is one argument he wouldn't want to be on the wrong side of. <laughs> and, you know, for me, that had a big impact. It's kind of like, so if you really, if you think there's a shot that climate change is for real, why wouldn't you want to do your part to make a difference? And that to me was, you know, as simplistic as it sounds, the most compelling argument. It's really easy. And today, you know, my, my kids, uh, you know, it's amazing how my 10-year-old is more focused on 
doing the right thing than I know I've ever been, right? So you think about that and you say, there is something happening here, and I don't want to be on the wrong side of it. Uh, and this became kind of an interesting opportunity to make a difference. Even though the difference initially, when I left BP, I, I did not know whether or not there was a fuels business here or whether or not it was a fuels business that was worth chasing. It wasn't even part of it. It really, it really uh, comes down to three things that drove me to join Amherst. Uh, one was the founders and the people at Amherst. It really blew me away where I, I, could, I could walk through a company and to an employee, there wasn't one person who didn't have a common purpose for being in that building. And that is completely unlike anything I experienced at BP. Uh, you know, at BP, there, there was, a, there was a, uh, a category or a segment of people inside BP that were there because they were on the edge of 50. And that's kind of the worst environment you can work in. So to have a company where everybody in that company had a purpose and it was a common purpose, I found very, very compelling. <laughs> I think the second thing was uh, the founders and the investors. Uh, it was a fantastic set of investors, and the founders convinced me that they were in it for the right reasons. I mean, they, they didn't even think about an IPO. They didn't even think about valuation. I mean, their whole focus was, we're here to do great science, and we can make a difference with it. And that was extremely compelling. Uh, and the third thing was uh, I was very uh, motivated or excited about the technology. I mean, I'm, I'm a technologist at heart, even though I'm not a scientist or a, a chemist. Uh, however, uh, technology and the opportunity to really change the world through technology has always been a key driver of the things I've done in life. And this, this was definitely in the sweet spot. Now, do you experience or did the company experience any tension between the deep DNA of pure science in the company and the founder's mentality, and I suspect a lot of other people besides the founders, and the need to develop commercial products and, and to go to market, so to speak? Yeah, if I, uh, if I said to any of you today that that was a minor issue in our company, uh, you, know, you should call me out. Uh, it, is a, uh, it is a point of tension. Um, and I, I would, uh, I consider it positive tension, even though, you know, not every day does it feel like positive tension. Some days you think, <laughs> you know, don't these guys get it? And I'm sure they think, what an idiot. He's trying to get production out of us. Doesn't he know it's just about great science? And, you know, I, I'm trying to paint extremes. I'm sure it's, it's not quite like that all the time. Uh, but it is a, it's, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's a very difficult transition to bring the two together. Something as simple as cycle time. I mean, you would think, well, of course, cycle time and a focus on zero defects is important uh, for many reasons, including making life easy, right? I mean, if you're always killing yourself and not getting much out of it, why would you do it? However, the minute you start capturing metrics, even talking metrics, uh, it, becomes, it becomes really difficult, right? It's almost like you're telling them you're going to let the lion loose inside the lab. Uh, it, it, so these kind of what seem like minor issues are actually significant cultural uh, clashes that occur between a commercial mindset uh, and uh, I'll call it a uh, research mindset. Mm -hmm. And I suspect the tension between permitting failure and experimentation but getting the level of innovation you want is also a tension that you experience inside the company. Yeah, I, Michael, I, I, I would say that uh, it is, and it's a constant exploration. I mean, I, I have this uh, debate all the time. Uh, you always, you know, so if you're, if you're in the lab doing experiments, what you want is space. Uh, history has taught me that actually, I'm not sure that it's space that drives most innovation. And knowing that balance, 
kind of, you know, how do you set milestones that put just enough tension in the process? Or how do you, how do you restrict just enough resource so that you are working in a resource-constrained environment and getting the most innovation? Because I'm not sure that a resource-rich environment gets the most innovation. Mm-hmm. So that, not only is it a tension culturally, it's actually, uh, you know, a continuous uh, issue to try to solve. Mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm constantly playing with what is the exact aim uh, of a milestone? Uh, how much resource do you give it exactly? Uh, how much, I mean, I, I'm currently working with a concept of, you know, why not have people who actually, whose purpose is to just have mindshare? Uh, all they do is they kind of have space to think and do nothing else and have people then who actually are very focused on production. You want their hands uh, designing the next code of DNA and RNA, placing it inside uh, that microbe and making it work. So it's, it's, a, it's a constant tension, and I'd say a learning process. So you clearly relish this process and this tension personally. Otherwise, I think you probably would have turned down the job. So where did this come from in you? Why are you this way? I just naturally love learning and discovery. Uh, so for me, I don't, uh, as much as some days, I do feel uh, completely uh, frustrated and burnt out in dealing with the fight. Uh, those some days are well, well overcome with the days of excitement where you push the edge. You learn something new and everybody has the big aha and they start doing something better. I mean, I think of, you know, the role of leadership as uh, creating an environment where the people around you are much better because of the environment you created than they would be otherwise. So I I thrive on that. And it's, uh, you know, I remember uh, in a way, I think of it as driven by my adaptive nature. I mean, I I immigrated to the U.S. uh, in 73. I came from a very small place, the Azores Islands in the middle of the Atlantic. And in the Azores Islands, when I left there, I mean, my, my, my dad was a farmer. Uh, I remember us having horses and ox carts. I remember uh, milking uh, a goat in the morning before going to school as the way you're brought up. So you go from that and you're thrown into, uh, you know, my first approach in the U.S. was uh, Logan Airport uh, and, and the tunnel. Uh, and you think, you know, you go from a horse <laughs> to the tunnel and your whole world is completely turned upside down. So you have a choice. You can either reject it and find a way to try to go back to what you know, or you adapt. And I think the, the adaptive nature and the desire to constantly learn helps a lot in environments where you really have no answers. You, 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 you must have a lot of focus on bringing the right types of people into the company with the, the capital that you've raised, the growth plans that you have. How do you f- identify the right kind of talent, and, and how hard is that right now in, 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 the, in the life of the company? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, second to uh, raising money, it's probably one of my core roles in the company. Uh, and it's interesting. I, uh, I focus on uh, one objective in identifying the right people, and it's all about culture. Hmm. Uh, and I focus on trying to understand uh, who they are as individuals. If somebody isn't adaptive, isn't a great collaborator, uh, doesn't have a learning mindset, Frankly, you know, I, I just don't think they have a place in our company. So for me, that's the, and, and you know, because I make the assumption that uh, most people that we interview are really smart. So, you know, being really smart isn't an advantage. The advantage is, can you take that, those smarts 
and do something really great with those smarts in a team environment. And if you can do that, again, great. Uh, your other question is, so you know, how easy or hard is it to find people like this? Uh, you know, I've been um, scared and then pleasantly surprised, right? So along the way, every time we've seen the plan for headcount growth, I mean, we have a very simple model that says, based on our history of developing the microbe, we know that it takes X number of people to do X number of experiments over X number of time to get uh, X level of yield improvement, which gets to your cost. Pretty simple. Uh, and obviously, we're always trying to make it more efficient, right? How do we get more out of what we have so that it doesn't take as many turns? Uh, so we've got a model then for headcount growth that tracks to that model that then gets to our cost target by the middle of 2009. When I first looked at the headcount growth, I thought, there's, just, there's no way we're going to do it. You know, it was like at the beginning or at the end of last year, uh, we had targeted, you know, in the first quarter of this year uh, or the first half of this year, we were going to grow the company by 70 people or 80 people. And I thought, you just can't do that. We're not going to be able to find all those people. Because this is, by the way, December going into January, and we hadn't found any of them. <laughs> so I'm thinking, you know, <laughs> there's just no way. And so I, I, it was funny. I had a December board meeting, and I decided to tell the board that, you know, that we're going to hire in a range. <laughs> and I gave them a pretty big range to just ensure that, you know, we could deliver on the low end because I thought there's no way we're going to get there. And sure enough, we're... I think the VCs called this sandbagging. Sandbagging. Yeah. Uh, I never sandbag. It's really... Uh, it was just it's trying... About broadening the target. Right, yeah. broadening the target. Yeah. No question. Uh, but, you know, we've done it. And we've done it because I think a key factor of our ability to attract people is actually having an exciting project to work on. There's no question that the malaria project has, you know, paid back a million fold already just in the quality of people and the energy it creates inside of our company. So I'm, I'm just excited about getting to the point of saving lives because you add that with the kind of, kind of people we're attracting and, you know, anybody that asks me, you know, why would you give it away? The question I have is why wouldn't you? Just the right thing to do. Let's hear a little bit from the uh, students uh, and other guests. What questions do you guys have for John? And, and I'll ask you, when you ask your question, please speak loudly so that everybody can hear. And also, if you wouldn't mind, just say your name and what program you're from. Yes. Yeah, um, I'm Tapish. I'm from the financial mathematics program. Um, so I just wanted to know, you mentioned about your background being slightly different from what you're doing right now. Um, so what was your undergrad in this? I'm a, you know, I'm sort of a strange case in that I dropped out. Uh, I, uh, I wanted to be an electrical engineer, so I was pursuing an EE and uh, well on my way, and then I decided, you know, I like building oscilloscopes at a time when the world needed a different application for oscilloscopes, which was uh, using oscilloscopes to diagnose uh, computers uh, on cars or in cars specifically. And so I uh, left school to go build oscilloscopes and then turn that into a career, and then from that, did other things. So uh, I really started as a, a, a guy who loved transistors and liked to build circuits and liked to turn those circuits into funny lines on a screen. And then from there kind of evolved into business and other parts of life. So, uh, so then the question is that, so how did you get into a field like uh, biotechnology or molecules, which is so chemistry intensive? I mean, since you didn't have any expertise in that area, so why would you not go for a field that was closer to what you had, an, had a background in, or, you know, something that was more relevant to the 
You know, it, it's a great question. I have to tell you, uh, I've only, I only think about that when uh, I find the days where I'm getting lost uh, in all the verbiage. Um, and I, I say that because I can tell you throughout my career, I, it wasn't, it's never been linear. It's never been, you know, based on my studies and my, my experiences, uh, here are the jobs I'm aiming for. It's actually been much more about, here are the things I love to do. Uh, and, and it's funny, uh, the other thing I want to be realistic about, early on, I don't think I had much choice. Reality is, I probably did, but my confidence level was such that I didn't think of it as much choice. I thought of it as, you know, interesting opportunity came around, it looked like interesting work, uh, and I did it. And the more I did that and started to accumulate sort of a portfolio of different experiences, the more I started to develop this view of the things I like to do. And they weren't jobs, they were attributes. I like to work with people, I like to inspire groups. I, so I started to develop what it was that I like to do, and then you know, I became pretty selective in ending up in the places I like to be. I, I mean, I'll give you a perfect example. Uh, when I went into the oil industry, I had had quite an extensive experience in the automotive vertical. So I was recruited to, uh, to Amoco Oil to turn around an automotive business they had. Um, you know, it was interesting. When I was recruited, uh, the president of the oil company said to me, you know, you, you should feel good about coming to workforce. We'll take care of you. And I'm like, what do you mean you'll take care of me? What do you, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, we've got a pension, and there's five years vesting, and, and I, I, it was all completely foreign to me. I, the last thing I wanted to do was have any big corporation take care of me. I just wasn't wired that way, right? So then I get in. Six months after being there, BP merges with Amico. Uh, and at that point, I think, this is good. I guess uh, we, we had, my wife and I, we, we bought a house in Illinois. We were moving from the Bay Area to Illinois. And we literally had been in the house for two weeks when the merger got announced. And I had no idea. It hit me out of left field, right? So my wife and I kind of said, so what do we do? Do we, do we finish the house and sell it? Or when, what do we do? And, you know, I, I never imagined myself going from, leading an automotive business inside of a big oil company to leading the rebranding of BP. Now, if I had fixated myself on all I do is this kind of thing, I can guarantee you I never would have ended up in rebranding the company, right? So it's, it's I don't know, it just kind of happens. That's a good question, a great answer. Yes, right here. Great observation. I have to say, I mean, I, I can relate to that, um, and I have to say that it was knocked out of me at a period. I remember uh, when I was in the Valley, it was like, you know, two, three years, and I would do something else, a different startup, a different, and it, it was kind of evolving technologies, right? I, I liked new technologies that were trying to break into established industries, and I did two or three of those, and then somebody looked at me at one point and said, you know, you, you, ought, to, you ought to think about staying in one place. 
for a longer time, <laughs> uh, which in a way, again, I did at BP, but by accident. It wasn't like I intended to go to BP and stay there for a long time. But it's interesting how people will sometimes try to knock out of you who you are. And you just have to, you have to stay true to yourself. How about on this side? Any questions? Okay, we'll come back to the middle. Yeah, thanks. Um, I'm Itasha Kay, I'm in the chemical engineering department. Um, you sort of alluded to this, but I just wanted to confirm that uh, your energy density is a, it's going to be the same. So the, the jet fuel that you're making, the energy density with your addition is the same as it is for just almost um, 100%. Slightly better than Jet A. About 1% improvement over Jet A. And you know, I think of 1% as kind of you know, non-material. I can tell you the airplanes or the airline companies think of 1% as very material uh, and because that's what they're looking for, right? They're, they've got a weight to density ratio that's really important for uh, their profitability. So theoretically, we might get our snacks back. Good luck. <laughs> that, that, that's actually just about what it pays for. So. <laughs> oh, this side's lighting up, yes. Great question, Celia. I, I, uh, I, I, in my last BP job, I uh, ended up working on the transformation of the U.S. marketplace for selling fuels. And in doing that, I became very close to uh, several very large customers, of which Walmart was one of them. I, I became the fastest uh, category uh, to create a billion-dollar business uh, within Walmart uh, in the history of Walmart. So I was pretty excited about doing that with fuels. And I can tell you that it, it won't take a lot to convince Walmart to take on a good product. Mm. And, and, you know, and it's partially because Walmart wants to do the right thing, uh, and secondly, because of economics. Think about this for a second. Uh, the last part of the supply chain, which is really what Walmart is very good at, getting every dime out of the supply chain they can, one of their last parts to really optimize is fuel. They are the second largest consumer of diesel in the world, uh, second only to the U.S. government. Uh, they consume just slightly less diesel uh, than Brazil does as a country, uh, as a company. So then think about this. There is a uh, $1 tax credit today for renewable diesel. Uh, if you do the math, and if I just share a piece of that with Walmart, it could represent you know, five to $600 million of profit improvement to Walmart. You combine that with doing the right thing for the environment. And you know, you know, the old, I guess the new saying, green is green, uh, there's no question that they, they start to see it that way. And th that's how we've uh, looked at our whole route to market. We looked at our route to market as diesel in the U.S. is five customers. Five customers represent about 30% of the market. And it's developing unique relationships with those five customers and selling to them directly, rather than trying to convince oil companies to take your products so they, they then can take all your profit margin. <laughs> yes, here. How do you differentiate yourself from conventional biotech companies which are in pharmaceuticals? And they also have a very high cost of development. So uh, is, does the, uh, the biotech industry look at you as a solution? I, I don't know. Uh, I see ourselves very different. I see, and it's kind of interesting. It's definitely become one of the themes internally around culture. Uh, if you think about some of our early hires from industry, they were out of the biotech industry. And there's just a very different mindset. When you're, when you're developing a product that takes 10 years to get to market, I guarantee you, you're wired differently. 
right? And I, so it's actually very different, and it's a bit of an issue. Uh, it's something I, I, I'm, I mean, I'm in heavy exploration right now. I, I don't think there is a performance management culture. In other words, metrics to drive high efficiency, to drive high throughput uh, in a uh, biopharma uh, industry. It may be evolving. I just don't see it as very mature. And I'm looking for how do you put that in place in a research environment. So uh, I don't think they're, they're very alike, even though people looking from the outside kind of see them in the same area, right? It's, it's biology and chemistry. It must all be biotech, and it all kind of works together. It's actually quite different. How about over here? Yes. Your cost per barrel went from 3000 to 200 what, what is kind of the theoretical low point for cost, and, and how far out in the future were you, you know, below oil prices? Uh, 55 to 60 is theoretical max, which is about 90% of the theoretical max of uh, the yeast strains that we're working with. Uh, and 90% gets you to 55 to 60, and we, we will be there uh, around middle of 09. And you know, you might say, well, you know, 55 to 60, what, what's the meaning of that? Uh, you know, the world's changing very fast. If you were to ask me a year ago, I would tell you 55 to 60 is about the break-even point for producing a barrel out of the newest large fields in the world. So it's a pretty important uh, target to have because it then makes you sustainable, even though there might be periods of time where you know, the industry goes below that, for them to really sustain themselves and have investment go back into the industry, you've got to stay above that with return of capital included. That number, specifically driven by a lot of inflation in steel and labor, is now really more like 80, 85, right? So it's really hard to fix or believe that number is fixed at any point in time. It'll vary, but that's the logic. And we sort of have to look at the number, i.e. what it takes to replace current reserves with um, our strains and theoretical max for the strain performance. Hopefully, they're close, but there's no, you know, it's more luck than it is science to get them close because you, you don't determine the theoretical max of thermodynamics inside of a cell. Yes. Hi, I'm Brian. I'm from the Civil Engineering Department. And I was wondering about uh, Amaris's uh, long-term or exit strategy. <coughs> Yeah, you and many investors. Uh, you know, I mean, here's the way I like to explain it. Uh, you know, uh, IPO is obviously one of uh, the exits that we consider. And I think of exit, I mean, I, let me say it differently. It is one of the ways uh, we think to bring liquidity to our investors. Because uh, at the end of the day, I mean, I, I think our management team and our people want to build a sustainable company for, for their future and the future of the world, not just get out of it. Um, so for our investors, liquidity, we think a key event would be an IPO. And our timing of that is, you know, we as a company will have hit the milestones we think we need to hit to do a successful IPO sometime around the beginning of 2009. Whether we do it then or not is dependent on the market and many other factors, but that's, that's what we see as our timing. Yeah. from the business school. My question is around supply constraints in order to scale your business. Um, what, what constraints do you have uh, that 
you know, that pushes your limit on how, how big you can scale your business. Where do you get all this yeast? Yeah, it's, the yeast is the easy part. The, uh, the cane juice is the harder part. Uh, so the constraint, it's all about scale. It's, you know, how fast can you get to how many gallons? You know, people sometimes ask me about customers, and it's like, look, uh, you look out, and this is a, you know, trillion-gallon market, the transportation fuels market. Trillion gallons at today's prices is a $4 trillion business. I'm not too worried about customers. Uh, I am very worried about materially scaling, building enough, fast enough to actually have any meaning in the world. I mean, you look at the industry today, and it's, you know, three and a half, four percent of the U.S. demand, right? So it's, and that's ethanol, not even a diesel product. Diesel products are non, you know, they don't even show up on the radar when you look at their total penetration of the world diesel market. So the real constraint is scale, and it's feedstock scale. We, we, we focused on... And feedstock is the stuff you feed the yeast? Uh, it's the stuff you feed the yeast, exactly. So we, we feed the yeast cane juice. Why do we pick cane juice? Uh, because I think of cane juice, and, and I'm not very picky, I don't really care which feedstock, as long as it's lowest cost. And it's lowest cost in total. It's lowest cost environmental, lowest cost in total impact in the world, and lowest cost in its ability to uh, capture and then extract carbon from the sun. That's, that to me is the sweet spot. And you're always looking for what is that feedstock. Today, that feedstock is sugarcane. Will it be something else in the future? I don't know. I hope so. I mean, I hope that some of the cellulosic technologies emerge and can take uh, waste by products into scalable models for fuel. Uh, if they do, we'll take the sugars that they can make from that waste and we'll make products out of them. But right now it's cane and it's uh, growing enough cane. It takes about three years of lead time to build or put to plant cane and then be able to grow that cane enough to make fuel. Here's the good news. In Brazil today, uh, there is a potential of about 95 to 100 billion gallons of production without affecting uh, forest, uh, what I'll call coastal forest, rainforest, or soyland, uh, which is a pretty big need today that Brazil produces for the world. So I look at that and say, lots of scale there, but that's the bottleneck. Can we, make, can, can we grow it fast enough to make enough production to make a meaningful impact? Let's have uh, one more question, then we'll sum up. Yes. Um, I'm curious if Amaris is looking, or has the tra trajectory focused solely on biofuels, or is it still looking to maybe address, or to come up with products that will address human health issues as well? That is a great question. I mean, that is one debate we have. And uh, my personal mission is uh, to only do pharma if it's consistent with our model for, uh, for our anti-malarial, which is that we can be uh, an ingredient into a current drug that significantly reduces the cost and provides access to those who need it. That's my only mission. And I think there are a couple of potential uh, targets that the Gates Foundation has been exploring with us. So if we find that we can microbially produce an ingredient for a much lower cost than current ingredients in some of the world's biggest killers and reduce costs, therefore provide access to the people who need it, we'll, we'll do that. Great question. I, I, a couple things struck me through the conversation. One is what you said about people. 
and I've observed a lot of this in the, st in the students I've worked with here and, and in the community in general here, this idea of an, ad an, ad an adaptive, high-powered brain that, that likes to work in teams. And those three things are really, I think, a common thread through a lot of the ETL guests we've, we've heard from this year. Um, and it's also nice to see that the practical application of that uh, adaptive, high-powered brain that likes working in teams is this, you do get frustrated and there are times when you have a bad day, but what the outcome from the adaptive, high-powered brain that likes to work in teams is you bounce back real quick and you come back and the mission excites you and the team re-excites you and, and that, it's that, that everyday blips and, and bobs in the, in the happiness meter don't get you down permanently. Um, I like that a lot. I also like the theme of turning non-renewable energy resources into renewable, cleaner uh, resources that actually leverage existing infrastructure. That's a combination of, uh, that's a strategic combination of, 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 of uh, variables that is new to me, at least as I thought about uh, folks trying to tackle the fuel <coughs> energy problems we all face. So I think that's a particularly noteworthy point. The last thing I'd say is I read a book uh, last year, or last quarter teaching with uh, Bob Sutton in uh, MSNE 282 on uh, what makes novel ideas stick or why do innovations happen and some of the best innovations that have most lasting impact on on markets and the lives of, of everyday people is when a relatively old idea is repurposed in a new way and I just got that in spades from what you talked about I mean to your point we've been fermenting we've been making beer and wine using yeast to help us have a party for a long time and 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 the, the fundamental concepts of feeding the yeast something and then having it metabolize and spit something out the back end, that's an old idea, but this is a whole new way to think about it, and it's really fascinating. I would just love in the last 30 to 60 seconds, uh, if you would give a piece of advice to these folks in the audience and tell them something, maybe somebody told you that you found particularly useful or something you wish you had known when you were in their shoes. And you'll have the last word. Uh, geez. Uh I would say this will sound kind of hokey, but I'll start by uh, an example and then uh, give you my sum. Uh, the example is, you know, throughout my career, interesting opportunities always presented themselves. Uh, and I was a bit impatient, and I typically jumped on the earlier opportunity. And looking back, I mean, it's been all right, but I can tell you that my, <laughs> my, my lesson through time, and I learned this a lot more in the last 10 years of my career than my first 10 years of my career, is just be patient. It's interesting. There's always the right thing out there for you. Don't jump on the first thing. Don't jump on the first idea. Be patient. And it's amazing uh, the, you know, the opportunities that will come your way. That's, that's the best thing I could give you is be patient and things will be just fine. And to sum it is, you know, don't stop pursuing your dream. I mean, it is, uh, I never, never dreamt of uh, having the opportunities uh, that this country has presented to me in the environment that, it, that makes it available. Uh, as an immigrant leaving the Azores, I mean, I had no idea what I was going to do with my life. And looking back, I think, you know, what a dream life. So don't stop dreaming and, you know, be patient and life will be just fine. Well put. Thank you very much. Thank you.